Inflation Country. My name is Phil. This is the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. We are in season three, and this is episode 18. Hope everybody's having a great week. Thank you very much for joining me. Joining us today for our chat is going to be Mr. Andy Estrom, and he is the author of the book, Why Buy Bitcoin? And he's a wealth manager. So this was definitely an interesting conversation for me as I've never actually gotten to speak with anybody from, uh, I guess we'll say the wealth management side of things. So I, I also find it very, um, I also find it very fascinating that people who did that much research and, and just, you know, have that kind of that knowledge about the current banking system and the investment, uh, the investment thesis, you know, to be able to switch over to Bitcoin. So I find it very fascinating. Like, you know, how did they do it? How did they unlearn what they learned? Anyways, um, before we get into our awesome conversation with Andy, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, Swan Bitcoin. All right, guys, we are going to talk about Swan Bitcoin and we are going to talk about dollar cost averaging. As you guys know, they're my first official sponsor and I'm obviously really glad because they are Bitcoin only and that's important to me. Uh, very important, actually, probably the, the most important thing. But anyways, let's talk about dollar cost averaging, right? Because in the end, we don't all have the amount, the full amount of money that we are going to put into Bitcoin all in one shot. And what is, I believe, to be the safest and easiest way to get into Bitcoin is with dollar cost averaging. And Swan Bitcoin offers you three really easy things to remember, okay? You can automatically withdraw from your bank account, automatic purchase of BTC, and automatic withdrawal to your chosen address, okay? It's nice and simple. It's run by some good people, and I definitely suggest any Bitcoiners to go and take a look at Swan Bitcoin and see if their dollar cost averaging platform works for you. All right, guys? So check it out. The link will be in the show notes. All right, we got the dollar cost averaging done. Now, on with the show. Here's my chat with Andy Estrom. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us on another Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I'm your host, Phil. And joining me today, I think, is a, a little bit of a, a, a different type of guest for, for the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. Uh, it's, uh, I've got Mr. Andy Estrom on with me, and he is the author of the book, why buy Bitcoin? Uh, he's also a wealth manager, an investor, and uh, what I'm seeing here is a self-proclaimed FUD buster. So, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the uh, yeah. Fun with Bitcoin podcast, man. It's great to be on with you, Phil. I, uh, I'm a fan of your pod. Um, you're, you've been doing this uh, for a while, and, uh, and it shows, and uh, so happy to talk with you. Thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, before we before we dive in, because uh, I, I know very little about you, you know, or your rabbit hole story. So I'm obviously going to want to explore that as well. But uh, what also what I find is interesting is I've never actually gotten to sit down and speak with a, you know, quote unquote, wealth manager on the topic of Bitcoin. Right. It's always other enthusiasts. So I'm I'm definitely excited to uh, to chat with you about that. So thank you very much. And uh, I guess what. Uh, We'll get right into it, man. What what brought you to Bitcoin? Like, like the, yeah, uh, the thinker question. behind the thought. And I'll go on a quick tangent uh, just to respond to your comment a minute ago, which is the reason you haven't talked to a wealth manager about Bitcoin is most of them uh, haven't done the work to understand it yet, <laughs> which is why I wrote the book. <laughs> but yeah, so so how did I find Bitcoin? Um, 
Yeah, real quick on me, I, uh, I came from the dark side of finance. Um, I grew up in L.A., I went to school in Massachusetts, which I understand is home for you now. Um, worked on Wall Street, worked for Goldman Sachs for a couple of years. Then I worked for a, hedge, or a private equity fund after that. That was fun out of the Carlisle Group, which is a big private equity fund complex. And then I worked for a multi-billion dollar hedge fund here in L.A. And then I switched into my family's business, which is wealth management. And that was over seven years ago. And yeah, I found Bitcoin when um, a couple people were pinging me about it in mid, well, early to mid-2017. The first exposure was actually um, reading The Economist magazine, which I do religiously, um, while I was on vacation. That was 2013. And of course, I didn't understand it. And it, it just totally went over my head and I ignored it. And then I heard about, you know, I heard about Bitcoin again when I think I heard about Ether, uh, when the Dow hard fork happened in 2016. But yeah, it, was, it wasn't until 2017 that I really that I really started digging in. And basically it came down to, you know, I, I pulled up coin market cap or something. And there was, I don't know, 10 or 20 billion dollars of value there in Bitcoin. And I don't know, another 10 or 20 billion in the in the overall crypto market. And I thought, huh, there must be something here. You know, maybe it's a bubble. Maybe it's a scam. Maybe it's something really exciting. Uh, turned out to be all three uh, in varying forms. Uh, I'm talking about crypto in general, of course. Um, and yeah, so that's that's how I uh, that's how I originally found it. And then, you know, I went through my usual the usual uh, progression for most people, I think, which is seeing Bitcoin. I know that's cool. And then seeing all the other alts and seeing, oh, wow, these are this one is faster and the other one is more efficient. And, you know, all these whiz bang features and Bitcoin is uh, is obsolete. Um, I always, by the way, kept my largest personal position was in, was in Bitcoin among, among all the cryptos. But over time, I became much more focused on Bitcoin and less focused on, uh, on the alts. So I did the usual, the usual journey. Um, people get distracted by, uh, I get distracted by all these other shiny things. And uh, if they work hard enough and dig deep enough, they finally uh, come to realize that, uh, that Bitcoin is, is the thing. So that's the... That's sort of the short answer, and I didn't get to the to the book, but I, I can tell you how I how I arrived at that. It was, let's see, so it was early last year. It was January 2019, and Bitcoin was down to three k or something. And I was looking, you know, I was I had figured it out, and I knew I need to get my clients involved, but I knew that they weren't going to understand it. I'd have a, I'd, I'd sort of tested the waters a little, you know, I'd had a couple preliminary conversations and. It was mostly blank stares and looks of horror, right? What you want me to buy the criminal money or you know, that's that type of thing. The usual fud, which which is why I've adopted the uh, the fud buster moniker on on Twitter. Is I feel like part of my job is just you know responding to the usual uh, the usual criticisms about uh, it's going to boil the oceans or it's criminal money or it's always you know exchanges are always getting hacked whatever. So. But 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 I realized I was going to have to tell the story, and I knew that I was going to have to just write it down because you don't. If you're trying to talk to somebody who really hasn't done much work, you know that one or two or even three conversations is not going to get them there. So I knew I was going to have to put it on paper, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to put it on paper for my clients, you know, as well as family members and friends, why not, you know, do it in a format that's easily readable, that's 
not um, you know not too big a lift, not too heavy a lift in terms of the total reading. I mean, it's definitely you know shorter than some of the uh, some of the other books on the market. But I didn't want to sacrifice you know any anything major in terms of the pieces that were required. And so yeah, I started writing it in January. Uh, I actually finished eighty percent of it in a, in a couple months. But then I realized that it was too technical, and so then I went through a process of of editing, you know, adding in a few anecdotes and stories from my time, uh, you know, working on Wall Street, and uh, yeah, and and that was the process for getting the book out. The book came out in uh, in September. So long winded answer to your question, but uh, that's but that's sort of my story of uh, of Bitcoin. No, I, I I absolutely love it, and obviously I have some follow up questions for you. Um, okay, so you know, I mean, to me, you you come from the traditional uh, the traditional finance background. Okay, so how dif- oh. how so to me, like, I I, I find it's uh, you know because we have a lot of kind of this you know this brainwashing that that just goes on all of this information that we kind of take you know for granted, right? You know, the government prints the money, and you know they they up the they up the supply and. You know, the uh, obviously the backing from gold was taken away, all that stuff. Like, how did you I guess, like, how did you unteach yourself? Like, because essentially, in order to be able to see Bitcoin for what it is, you kind of have to you have to be willing to take a step back from the traditional information that we've been fed. Like, I I guess, do you recall what it was that kind of triggered you to decide that that this was a worthy rabbit hole to, to go down? Yeah. So we, you're right. We are all, uh, as Brady Swenson says, uh, says in Bitcoin, we're all default Keynesian. At least most of us, right? And I took, you know, I took an economic degree from a good school, and uh, it did not prepare me well. (laughs) There were some, you know, useful pieces of information that I learned, but in terms of the framework, yeah, I was not, I was not trained in Austrian economics, and sadly, as you know, the Austrians get short shrift in our. education system so yeah so how did it so for me you're absolutely right bitcoin was was definitely a forcing function for understanding austrian economics um and so if i think it really was you know honestly curiosity and greed right in other words when i started looking at bitcoin i started looking at crypto in general i obviously had to uh, absorb you know some of the computer science um some of the psychology and political science, um, some of the game theory, you know, so, uh, some of the tech, obviously. I had some of those pieces in place. I had covered tech, you know, on and off for years. Um, the game theory, you know, I was pretty strong on. I did not have the, you know, the distributed systems, computer science, except for I did know, you know, some about how the internet was architected. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I definitely had to had to do the work and, and pick up those pieces. I did not have the Austrian economics at all. I will say, I'll say one footnote is I started buying gold for my clients in 2016, and that was that took some effort. Credit to Matt Fair, my former colleague at my prior job at Tenenbaum Capital, and he he started you know sort of pulling on my shirt and saying, hey, you know, you ought to started thinking about how much money they're printing. This was after the financial crisis, right? Um, and, uh, and thinking about gold and being raised and trained as a fundamental investor, you know, sort of, or a value investor in sort of the Warren Buffett school, 
except, you know, with a positive inclination toward tech, um, (laughs) you know, which which he does not have, although he's sort of grown, grown that later in life, um, acquired that later in life. But so, you know, I never believed that anything that didn't generate cash flows was investable, right? So gold was like totally anathema. Now, I finally got over that hump in 2016, thankfully. Um, but yeah, you know, going down the rabbit hole with the Austrians was was just my desire and interest and curiosity to really fundamentally understand Bitcoin. And obviously part of that was exposure to uh, great minds who are already in Bitcoin, you know, who are coming at it from the, from the Austrian angle. I mean, obviously, you know, Stefan Levera, yes. whose podcast I was on, um, I did an episode with him, I, I guess about a month ago, you know, he was, he was, he was one who, uh, who, who definitely had an impact on me, you know, probably Pierre Rochard and Michael Goldstein, you know, played a role there. Um, it just sort of piquing the interest coming at it from a very strong Austrian perspective, mm-hmm. that was important for me, you know, thinking about and doing my homework and as well as probably safety. I mean, you know, I read the Bitcoin standard and that obviously influenced my book. I cite, I cite that book, his book, um, in my book, probably more than once. And, um, yeah, so all these things clued me into the importance of the Austrians and finally got me to read, you know, human action, Man, economy, and state—you know the sort of seminal uh, works, which are extremely lengthy. Uh, they're a slog, but man, they're they're great stuff. And uh, and anybody who really wants to get into the weeds and understand from first principles—that's practically required reading. But yeah, that's that's what I'd say. That's how I approached it. Very cool. I um I also wanted to add to that book list um, one that I I also recently finished was uh, the Road to Serfdom. Um, yeah, which was you know I had read. I, sorry, I oh no, go ahead. That is the one that I had actually been exposed to uh, prior because that one is what well, you you should remind me. Tell me tell me about your experience. Like how long did it take you to get through it? Okay, so I have to be honest. Um, I it it took me it did take me a while. Um, it, it took me longer than some other books, and I had recently read um, the uh, the the Taleb Brick. You know the yeah. uh, right uh, anti fragility uh, anti fragile. Sorry, inserto. Thank you. Yes, exactly. I just I, I apologize. I call it the brick, but it's, <laughs> but that's uh, well. Look, Taleb is required reading. I have read yeah. every one of Taleb's books at least twice. I mean, Full by Randomness, Black Swan, Anti Fragile, Skin in the Game. Um, there's the short one of aphorisms, um, better crusties. Yeah. So yeah, that stuff is, is amazing. And anyone who has lived, anyone who lived through the financial crisis and hasn't read that stuff is, is definitely behind the curve. And you're right. There's a lot there. I mean, that's, yeah. it's a lot of paid material. Although frankly, I bet you that those books in total, you know, the total page count on those books probably isn't much in excess of just, you know, human action. I mean, human action is like 500 pages. <laughs> human action is still on my to-do reading list. I, I did Road to Serfdom first, but it's uh, I actually have it on my uh, on my Audible wish list. But uh, to go yeah, back we'll to be... you... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, just to go back to your um, your question about the Road to Serfdom. So th- it was a very dry... It was a very dry read. 
Um, it was it was actually to me very long and difficult. And my my main takeaway from that book um, was really that. And again, I I could totally be wrong, but the main takeaway for me was was that when we organize our resources and we centralize without um, actually uh, without correct incentives, um, we always end up um, leaning towards uh, socialism. Like it's like yeah. all all the fucking roads lead to us in, <laughs> in 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 that place where you know what I mean. Like everything is just you know doled out, checked, and it's you know a small cabal of people that manage and run everything, and you are just this you know lack of a better term and a that's fucking where, peasant. That's actually, where we are today, right? Yep. I mean, that's where we are with government policy. You know, I the last. Um, I don't know if this is of interest or not, but I've been self quarantining, right? I've been I've been in lockdown for now five weeks. Okay, Same. I haven't left. I've only left the house one time, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> it was I had a check, and I had to go to the bank <laughs> to deposit <laughs> it. So the legacy financial system screws me again. <laughs> um, but, you know, I I put on my mask and I had my rubber gloves and I went to the drive-through ATM. Right, I didn't go into the branch. I went to the drive-through ATM. You know, I spritzed the sprayed down the keypad to go deposit my check. But other than that, I haven't left the house. And um, so it's been a weird time. I mean, it's been very stressful. You know, anybody who's who's investing or managing money, you know, either for themselves or or you know for clients, which is the case for me, it's been. Uh, it's been a wild time. And, um, and I just, I look at the state of the world today and the state of the markets, you know, especially stocks, because obviously that's a key part of what I do. And I scratch my head because I, you know, we had this big downturn and we've had actually a very substantial, you know, relief rally, which looks to me like a bear market rally. I mean, I, I I'm not going to say that definitively, but, but yeah. I do worry about sort of the second down leg and yeah, I look at government policy and, you know, we used to joke, or at least I used to joke about this concept called QE, that's quantitative easing, infinity, right? QE infinity. That was a joke before. And now it's real. It's totally real. <laughs> There's no limit on how much is going to get printed. And they've, and they've said that explicitly. And yeah, and then meanwhile, you know, every huge parts of America are now forced onto the dole because they've said you can't work like you know, you can't you can't do your job, um, so you can't leave the house. I mean, it's varying degrees, and it's in different. You know, it's not exactly national down, you know, by decree, but at, at the state level and at the local level. And so, yeah, we've been pushed into this scenario, uh, in large part due to the errors of the state in the accumulation of debt, right? In the in the decades since we left the gold standard. But yeah, you got we got to be really vigilant right now about falling into that socialism trap because it's literally happening happening as we speak. Oh yeah, I I, I totally agree. And uh, just to comment on the uh, on on the uh, the stock market because I I've I mean don't get me wrong you know I'm not gonna pretend I I'm just an amateur right I've been doing I've been buying and holding stocks I'm not a day trader but been doing it since yep. uh, I was about twenty and uh, so almost uh, so about twenty years and I I gotta say um, once I understood that they're just gonna print us out of this I I understand that although the stock market like we may have another leg down to go 
Um, but the stock price is, to me anyways, the, the actual dollar values are simply just going to keep going up. I mean, you know, yeah. for, for, for the companies that generate cash flow, like you look at a Visa or MasterCard, you know, the, you know, the, the government printing money doesn't really, I mean, to them, it doesn't hurt these people, you know? No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100% on that point. And that's where we have this tricky balance right now. So, yep. so yes, if we, if, we, if we print infinite money, then the price of most everything goes up. Including and especially, you know, risk assets, as you say, stocks. And then, of course, the problem is, you know, are you beat? Are you beating inflation, or by how much are you beating inflation? You know, if the stock market's going up, uh, you know, let's say the stock market goes up seven percent a year for the next five years, but you know, inflation goes up, you know, five or six percent, or seven percent, or more. Um, so, so there's so there's that issue. And so, I agree with you. I mean, I don't in nominal terms. I'm not sort of bearish in nominal terms in the abstract, but then I go back to your former point about the road to serfdom, which is what does capitalism look like? Capitalism was already having a little bit of a hard time, let's say, you know, prior to this event. And what does it look like in the future? Um, you know, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement. I think that was 2011. And it was, you know, it was some people made some noise in Zuccotti Park, you know, New York wasn't that big a deal really but i think after we get through this crisis not right now because people are you know hunkered down you know millions and millions of americans have lost their jobs you know probably soon to be tens of millions they're just trying to survive and but after we get through it you know maybe it's a year maybe it's two years from now then people are going to start asking questions and realizing where the money in this 2.2 trillion dollars you know that's what they're planning to spend already, but there will be more. They're going to be figuring out, you know, where it went and who got bailed out again, you know, and which executives, you know, got their got their compensation packages supported again. You know, this already happened in the financial crisis eleven years ago, and now and now they're doing it again. And they're going to really start wondering about about the overall system. And there, you know, the the restrictions that are going to be leveled on companies and boards and the changes in corporate governance, that's going to be negative for, let's say, stock prices and, and investors. I mean, once once the government is a shareholder in your company, Ugh. you have to apply, let's say, apply a higher discount rate to the future cash flows that you might earn, right? The valuation should go down in that case. Um, so yeah, that's what concerns me is, is what does capitalism look like on the other side of this, you know, due in part to... Um, social indignation and pushback, which is totally justified um, and due in part to the government's involvement. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to see, you know, the S&P, you know, being worth 20 times earnings in this new environment. It's just hard for me to see the valuations there. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky balancing act between what you suggested, which is nominal prices probably go up. But, you know, what's the right valuation level for for these companies? And we don't know yet. That that that's exactly right, and I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely worried because we've obviously never printed this much in such a short period of time, and it's so okay. So we're obviously you know we're at this spot, and you know enter Bitcoin, right? 
You've got this, uh, you know, you've got, you've got your Thank book, God. you know, you've got your book that you mentioned. Now, I, I just, um, I, I just want to uh, kind of touch on something uh, about the, uh, about your book. Because um, you started, sure. you, you started off uh, right at the beginning. Hold on a second. So check this out. So reading this book may cause you to question some, f- uh, some fundamentally held but insufficiently examined assumptions about the world. So it's yes. it, it's interesting, right? Because that goes back to you know that that goes back to the whole red pilling is that all of a sudden you know you now have to get introduced to you know the all these different aspects, the technology, the the philosophy of it, the the you know economics of it. So yep. it, it's definitely uh, it, it's definitely scary. And your first chapter, I believe, is why money. I, yeah, I think why that, is money? Yes. Why is money? Why is my? I was like, oh, yeah, I, what is money, right? And that's your. And there's a chapter called "What is Money," but the first chapter, <laughs> the prior to that chapter, "What is Money," is a chapter "Why is Money," and that that is a is an effort. By the way, so the, the big picture on the book, just in a nutshell, is it is you know why and what is money? It is what is the current state of the of the financial system and the world in terms of debt, right? And which is a big problem. Um, then it's, you know, what is Bitcoin? And then it's, you know, the upside case and the valuation for Bitcoin. And it's the risks of Bitcoin. And it's Bitcoin as an investment, you know, in the context of a, of a diversified portfolio. So that's the book. And yeah, as you point out, you know, the why is money question. What I really wanted to do was I spent a few pages basically on fundamentals of, you know, really evolution of civilization you know, the, the, the fallacy, I shouldn't say the fallacy or the, the misconception of barter, right? People like to think that before there was money, there was barter. And there may have been some barter, although the work by David Graeber, um, who wrote this uh, great book, um, Debt, called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. <laughs> and this is actually a book that was promoted uh, by Wences Casares. You know, Wences Casares was sort of patient zero. He's the founder of Zappo, which got bought by Coinbase. He's sort of patient zero in Silicon Valley in terms of people in, or exposing people to Bitcoin. Um, and so anyway, so what Graeber said was, look, there's there's no anthropological evidence, basically, that barter was very popular. What he suggests is more likely uh, when we were all living in small settlements, right, after we were wandering in the bush and we settled down and had agriculture, chances are that if I wanted to transact with my neighbor, you know, it would basically be on a on an informal debt system, right? I got, you know, I have wheat and he has chickens um, and I need a chicken, but he doesn't need my wheat right now. So I take his chicken instead of giving him wheat. I just he just says, "Ah, you know, owe me later, basically. And that works because in a small society, in a simple society, you basically transact with your neighbors. You never leave the settlement. Right. You basically live, you know, uh, marry, have a family, die in the same area for the most part. And so there's those bonds of trust that that uh, that are the basis for commerce at that small scale. And it's only once you get higher levels of trade and larger settlements where, you know, no longer do you know everybody personally that you're transacting with and therefore money, you know, really comes into play. And so I felt it was, it was useful to cover that in a few pages. What I don't do in the book is get into great detail on the history of money. Um, There's other people that have frankly, you know, done a a great job of that. Um, I just didn't want to spend, you know, a hundred pages, on, on that issue. But I do spend a few pages, let's say, on sort of the, the basic civilizational logic for 
why money exists, you know, what's the anthropological historical basis for that. And, um, and that launches into, you know, broader discussions of where is this, what is the state of the world today in terms of money and in terms of debt and how that dovetails into Bitcoin. I, I think that I, I really appreciate that you start off the way that, that you do in the book, because to me anyways, one of the most difficult things about explaining Bitcoin to people is that you first have to explain to everybody what money is because apparently we are all a bunch of to be honest for the most part idiots wandering around that don't actually understand what money is we only understand the piece of money that we use so you you know what i mean totally i mean i was totally ignorant of this right i took a degree in economics I did, you know, the CFA program, which is sort of the, you know, gold standard for professional investors. I mean, I went through all these processes without learning. And, and then, by the way, spending, you know, a decade and a half as a professional investor uh, without learning really what the fundamental tenets of money are, which is pretty amazing, right? <laughs> amazingly, amazingly ignorant is what I was. So, you know, if I worked in the financial uh, industry for that long without truly understanding the basis of money, well, I can be pretty confident that most other people, you know, haven't either, because um, most other people, you know, don't. They're sort of even less adjacent to the to the world and the use of money. So yeah, it's it's an important thing to understand. It's important to understand that that at the fundamental level, money is a medium of exchange across both space and time, and it's from that basis that you can understand the development of money as well as the underlying characteristics. And that's key in the book is I identify 14 characteristics of good money. You know, most people identify five or six or seven. And, um, and I go on to score, you know, the dollar and gold and Bitcoin along those characteristics, which I think is a, is a useful exercise. It's imperfect, but it, but it helps, uh, you know, sort of get the gears turning in the brain uh, in terms of thinking about, oh, you know, why have certain forms of money been successful either on and off for periods of history, you know, or for longer time periods. And how could Bitcoin fit into that framework? And key to understanding that, of course, is that the old kinds of money are either flatlining or in decline, right? We can say that gold, gold is gold. I mean, without getting into the, you know, weeds on the history of gold, <laughs> right? Like, let's just say it ain't changed much in the last, you know, few thousand years. Nope. So it is what it is. And it's a great uh, form of money in certain ways. And then you look at fiat and especially the dollar and you say, well, okay, that's in decline, right? As, as the central bank, uh, as the Fed, you know, prints literally unbounded, you know, amounts of money. And as central banks around the world print, the quality of that money is going down. And then in contrast, I argue, Bitcoin is going up, right? It's, it's improving. One is just the Lindy, you know, effect of how long it's been around. Um, and then two is literally uh, the new layers, you know, second layer solutions, third layer solutions, whether it's lightning or something else, you know, whether it's the exchanges improving. I mean, the infrastructure that's being built on top of the base layer is continuously improving as you've got, you know, tens of thousands or more of smart people working on it um, all the time. So, so, so I think it's important and useful to understand the trajectory of Bitcoin, which is upward. Mm-hmm. And the trajectory of these other legacy forms of money, which is either flat or downward. 
I, I definitely, uh, I, I really like that. And I think that that really, really helps with perspective um, because people, people like pictures, people like graphs, you know? So if like, if you can show a nice, easy story to somebody, they're more likely to grasp the, uh, the, the concept. So, yeah, no, I agree. I'm just going to interject one thing, oh, yeah. which is the easiest and most important, probably graph, you know, in the book and most important concept in this whole larger arena is the debt level, right? And I actually, I lifted stuff from, uh, from Ray Dalio. Um, he's written a lot about it. He, he runs the world's biggest hedge fund. And um, yeah, you just look at debt as a percent of GDP over the last century. And it's pretty simple. Um, you know, the first century you had World War II. And I won't get in the weeds right now about sort of what happened during and subsequent, but suffice to say that debt to GDP post-war and while we we're under the Bretton Woods, you know, gold backed system, mm -hmm. this was what, 1944 to 1971, I think debt to GDP was basically flat. You know, it's kind of in the 140% range. I'm talking about total debt. That's mm -hmm. government debt plus corporate debt plus household debt. And then we went off the gold standard, right? And it just starts, you know, climbing like a rocket ship. And we got to 330% of GDP. I think it was actually close to 350 around the around the financial crisis. And then in the 11 years since then, you know, total debt to GDP fell slightly and then it flatlined and now it's going back up again. And yeah, you can't that's the single I think most interesting and simplest graph in the whole thing. Um, and it's just the, the ongoing rise in the level of debt. And um, yeah, my belief is that has to resolve itself. And I lay out, you know, the scenarios in the book that I see for how it could resolve itself. But the least painful and most obvious way, in my opinion, is, you know, is ultimately inflation. I, I definitely agree. And, and it does... Um... It does obviously kind of, you know, kind of scare me in a way because there there are no other um, there are no other tricks. There's nothing else, you know, for for the system to do than to continue, you know, than, than to continue to print money. And as we've seen yeah. with all fiat currencies, um, they all trend to zero. So that's right. <laughs> or in our case, right. I mean, below zero. <laughs> <laughs> the history does not bode well on this on the on this point. Yeah, I think the you know the average lifespan of a fiat currency is, is thirty years or less. And you can look at reserve currencies and you say, okay, you know the average reserve currency maybe lasts a century or century and a half, right? You know, the Spanish currency had its day, as did the Dutch currency, you know, as did the British pound, and then it's been the dollar, you know, for a century now. But um, yeah, the um, we're probably closer to the end than the beginning for the dollar. And um, it, yeah, it, it, uh, it doesn't bode well. And this, you know, this, the menu of options is there are other ways to, to get out of this debt problem in theory. I mean, you can have austerity, right? You can cut budgets. Well, politically that's impossible. So yes, in theory it could happen, but practically it won't. I mean, you can have mass defaults, you can have a depression, you know, or you can have a Jubilee, right? You can have forgiveness of debts. And again, you know, problematic, those things, because of what they do to, uh, you know, well, defaults just mean, you know, Great Depression, yeah. basically, and nobody wants to go through that. Um, a jubilee causes you to call into question sort of all property rights. Well, right? yeah. If you can just change a contract, you know, by fiat, quote unquote, 
then it's like, well, what's the basis of any of, you know, of our economy? So, yeah, so then you get into other options like financial repression. Right? This is a term that was coined by a couple of Stanford economists back in the 70s. That's ongoing. That includes keeping interest rates really low. Um, it, in a lot of cases, includes capital controls. We're sort of not at that level yet in the U.S., but it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if we see that. Um, and then, um, of course, you've got, uh, sorry, austerity. I'm missing. Uh, oh, redistribution. That's coming, right? <laughs> That's ongoing. I mean, you could argue that, you know, the checks. I could, on the one hand, argue that the, you know, whatever, $1,200 checks to Americans that need cash is redistribution. Although, unfortunately, you know, for every dollar that's going direct to consumers, more than a dollar is going to corporations, you know, varying size. Some is direct bailouts of large corporations. Others is, you know, money funneled through quote unquote small companies. You know, that's companies of 500 employees or less. But, you know, no doubt some of that's going to accrue to the CEO slash owner of those of those companies. And um so, yeah, so you've got that factor. And then the last is just money printing, which is ultimately inflationary. And when I wrote the book, which is not that long ago, <laughs> published in September, um, you know, if you'd asked me how long are we how long is it going to take till we get inflation? And when I say get inflation, I'm talking about, you know, let's say five to eight percent annualized, you know, CPI, consumer price index inflation. Yeah. I would have said, well, within a decade. Right. But I don't know when in the decade, like it could be two years from now. It could be 10 years from now. Not anymore. <laughs> now it's two years I from had, now. Clients exactly a week ago. Okay. I put a, a note out to my clients saying I have brought that timeline in word by about, uh, you know, about five years, essentially. I will be pretty surprised. We don't see mid single digit mid to high single digit consumer price inflation you know within the next five years that's my view oh yeah I, I mean if we don't see it then it indicates to me that something in the system is artificially holding that number down which is also frightening in, in its own right yeah it is and by the way i'm talking about when i talk about cpi i'm talking about like cpi is reported by the government mm -hmm. i already you know take the view that the official inflation numbers are, are understated, um, perhaps by a significant amount. But the reason we know the inflation is coming is because the Fed has told us. Okay, <laughs> And I cite this also in the book, which was, I think it was May of last year, the Fed made a statement, the FOMC, written statement, right? This is an official release from the Federal Reserve talking about the symmetry, quote unquote, symmetry in the inflation target, which means, you know, their target is 2% annual inflation. But what they've said is, according to the way we calculate inflation, we being the Fed, um, we've been undershooting that 2% target for years now. So because our target is quote unquote symmetric, it would be okay if we overshot for a while. And then in the most recent period, right, the last month or two, I've, I've seen the word symmetric in, in, with respect to the inflation target continue to pop up, right, in releases from the Fed. I mean, they're they're literally putting it on paper. They're saying, look, guys, <laughs> we're going to give you higher than 2% inflation. And uh, because we undershot for so long, it would be okay if it was higher than target, you know, for a while. Now, what that means in practice and how it plays out, we don't know. But what we do know <laughs> is they intend they're going to keep printing until they get the inflation. They're going to do whatever it takes to uh, to, to deliver inflation. <laughs>
that is just absolutely brutal. It 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 yeah. really it, it really is. is. Yeah, which is why buying Bitcoin, buying hard money assets, right? So like I look, you know, what do I do for my clients? Well, for my clients right now, it's gold and Bitcoin. And you know, there's some in the in the Bitcoin community that are very anti-gold. Um, I'm not. I think it's okay right now to own uh, to own some gold. I think it's a great idea, in fact, uh, to own both gold and some Bitcoin. If you can, you know, stomach the higher volatility of Bitcoin, well, you know, then you know, feel free to skew your portfolio in that direction. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a great time. Another way to look at this, by the way, I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine who's in the industry, which is if Bitcoin doesn't rally, let's say in the next 18 months, right? Mm -hmm. If we get to the end of 2021 and Bitcoin is not a lot higher, um, then we might have found out that we were wrong, so to speak. In other words, if the thesis doesn't play out you know, in the next year and a half, I'll be scratching my head, right? With yeah. central banks printing infinite money uh, it would be kind of shocking to not see the price uh, much higher in that time period. And I, by that point, would have to question my assumptions, let's say, about um, about the whole thesis. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right now I am uh, I am accumulating. I'm stacking my sats. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put in one chill, which is there's one there's one and only one uh, company that I've invested directly <laughs> in the space. One Bitcoin, you know, which is. As far as I know, the cheapest way basically to set up an, an auto dollar cost average DCA system. Yep. And um, 0.49%, so I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Hey, if, um, if you do the and, auto DCA. Yeah. And it depends, by the way, on how much you're stacking. I think you oh. get a you get a better rate basically if you uh, if you increase your, your weekly uh, stack amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a logical way to accumulate um, the world's hardest money over time uh, in a period when the central banks of the world have promised on paper to deliver inflation. <laughs> <laughs> that's brutal. Kind of okay, right? <laughs> and uh, I just By the way, I have to give the usual disclaimer, which oh. is, you know, all these opinions are my own. Yeah. None of this is investment advice. You know, none of this represents uh, the views of my employer, Westcap Group, right? These are my personal views and uh, do your own research and all that good stuff. Heaven, heaven forbid people take personal responsibility for the decisions that they choose to make from the things that they hear. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, I, you know <laughs> you're within your rights to, you know, hire someone like me, you know, basically to do your investing for you. And, and many people choose to do that. But um, but yes, it's uh Buyer beware and uh, and be careful and uh, just be ready for for volatility and all this stuff. And I just wanna I just wanna add the platform uh, that you're talking about is Swan Bitcoin, right? And uh, they they just uh, recently uh, recently got launched, and everybody should definitely go check it out. I'm obviously gonna put the link in the show notes. And as you know, the fun with Bitcoin listeners know, they are my first official sponsor, uh, Bitcoin only, and I'm super proud. So. Obviously, I'm I'm happy to have you on this show, and I found out after the fact uh, that you were involved with them. So that totally, you know, that totally worked out for me. And like I said, yeah, happy coincidence. Yeah, because <laughs> no. I had reached out to you. I was I was you know I was thinking about you know who are my favorite podcasts, who are my favorite Bitcoin podcasts, and who have I not had a conversation with? And uh, 
I pinged you and uh, yeah, we, we discovered uh, soon after the fact that uh, we had this commonality. We had this in common. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Um, I, I did, uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, you got to get going soon because you, you got other meetings and everything, but, uh, I, I did want to ask you, um, in, in being a wealth manager, what to me, uh, I guess, are you seeing, is it people coming and asking you about Bitcoin or is it more you reaching out to people about Bitcoin? Yeah, it's definitely a mix. Um, and it's mostly demographic, right? So I have actually a lot of baby boomer clients and even older clients. Um, so those guys are, for the most part, you know, nowhere on this stuff, right? It's been me coming to them saying, you know, hey, take a look at this, basically. And you're going to see it in their in your portfolio. And some of them are sort of a different, some of them, you know, were uh, shocked and horrified, at least at the beginning, <laughs> just because of all the, you know, all the bad headlines they've read in the press, in the mainstream media. Um, and, you know, among that demographic, like, no, it's none of the inquiry has come has come from them. Um, it's it's been my initiative. Um, now, amongst the younger cohort, there it's more of a mixed bag. And I have, you know, of course, gotten some some inbound uh, interest, you know, just kind of out of the blue um, as a result of people either you know reading the book or hearing me on a podcast. So there has been a little bit of that. Um, cool. Yeah. So it's it's yeah it, that's been great. And but yeah, it's basically been a straight you know. The, the defining variable there basically is your age, at least in my experience. And if you're older, um, you're clueless and slash skeptical, or at least you have been on average. And if you're younger, you know, then it's much more of a mixed bag. There's definitely some skeptics. Um, and then there's some, you know, people who are, who are, you know, sort of more curious um, and or interested. Yeah, that's kind of the spectrum, I would say. Cool. Very cool. So, okay, we're going to wrap this up, but before we do, do you have any uh, any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Um, yeah, you know, of course, I'll, I'll show the book. Um, it's called Why Buy Bitcoin. Uh, the subtitle uh, is Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow, and it's uh, available on Amazon. Amazon's the primary channel. You can either get it uh, in physical copy or you can get the, you know, the ebook version. Oh. It's also available on Apple. Yeah, so so there's some places. By the way, I have uh, the experience. I've had um, a couple people, like uh, you know John Vallis. I was on his pod. I don't know a couple months ago. He ordered a physical copy. He's in Newfoundland, I think, and it took it. It took him like two weeks to get there. So uh, so lucky for me. He in the interim, he also ordered a digital copy. So I managed to sell him two books. <laughs> nice. But suffice to say, that depending on where you're located, you know, physical delivery can take you know longer depending on what Amazon's doing. But um, anyway, you know, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Edstrom Andrew. That's the last name, first name, Edstrom Andrew. And then I do have a personal website. It's andyedstrom.com. Um, and that's mostly, you know, a list of podcast appearances and stuff about the book. And then my firm is westcapgroup.com, um, you know, for anyone who's interested in, uh, you know, learning about wealth management services. So there it is. Cool. I'm going to post the link in the uh, in the show notes. And I, I'm sorry, I did want to ask you, uh, because I was talking about this with you. Are, are you going to do an audible version? Oh, yes. So good question. So <laughs> I definitely would love to do an audible version. And I've actually received several, you know, offers from people generously, you know, Guy Swan is one, um, but uh, also several other people. And so I'm really grateful for those uh, offers. And to be honest, 
I have, I have been, you know, running around like chicken with my head cut off for the last couple of months, you know, since the financial market turmoil. So I've not sort of had any time to think about it. And my expectation is that if and when I do the auto version, I'll probably do it myself. Um, just because I feel like, well, A, I feel like, you know, it's hard for anyone to sort of capture the essence of it, you know, who's, who's not the author themselves. And the second thing is I've actually, you know, solicited a few, a few people about, you know, hey, what should I do? Should I do it myself? Should I have someone else read it? And most people say do it, you know, they, they say that they love it when authors, you know, do their own narration. So that's my, that's my inclination. Um, the problem with that inclination is I haven't had the time to do it. So I would love to do it. But what I would say is don't hold your breath. You know, it might not be doing any time soon. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. we're, we're going to try to put some pressure on you for that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but man, that's, uh, <laughs> but again, thank you so much for, uh, taking the time to be, uh, to be on the fun with Bitcoin podcast. I, I really appreciate it, Andy. It's been really cool talking to you. Yeah. Cool. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me on. And, um, yeah, hope uh, hope to talk again soon. All right, cool. Cheers. The links will be in the show notes to everything discussed. And of course, if you want to reach me on Twitter or Telegram, I am at CoinIcarus. If you want to shoot me an email, I am CoinIcarus at funwithbitcoin.com. All right, everybody. Hope you had a good time. Thank you for listening and catch you all next time.